welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Steve Asawa provides an overview and introduction to the book of Titus and shares from Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the 18th part of the series, The Household of God. And now, here's Steve. Emma, Ryan, Trevor, for helping us just focus on how great a God we actually have and thinking of His grace, His love for us and how it just leads us into worship and just turns our hearts to Him. This morning we're going to start working through the book of Titus. It has many similarities to the, the books of First and Second Timothy which we just finished looking at. This morning I'm going to provide an overview of this book and we'll look specifically at the first four verses. Before we get into this, though, let's just commit our time in prayer, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we just pause and just marvel at your love, with the incredible love that sent your Son Jesus to the cross for us. We're so privileged to be able to be here, and as we open your word, I pray that you would just guide my words, that you would just open all our hearts to to learn something new and to draw closer to you. And we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think about when I say Bible Fellowship Assembly is? Bible Fellowship Assembly is. What comes to mind? Anything? Pardon? A church. Good. A congregation, yes. Family. Family. Good. Pardon? Worshippers. Worshippers. Okay. Friends. Good. A few thoughts. A good place to meet. A local church. Bride of Christ. A strange group of Christians. Some might think that. How about... A family. One word that comes to me, to mind to me, is family. Yes, we're part of God's broader church. Yes, we're an eclectic group made up of people from a whole range of different social backgrounds, different spiritual backgrounds, um, you name it. I think we cover it with this group. And for some of us, absolutely, it's more than just a church. It's family. As we all know, families come in different sizes and shapes. Sometimes members get along. Sometimes they don't get along so well. Sometimes they're very close-knit. Other times, they really aren't. Sometimes there's some with a strong personality that just insists on doing it their way. Other times, everybody has a say in how things go. In a family, people need to learn what the expectations are if they're going to get along, right? And sometimes people need to be disciplined. Uh, sometimes, unfortunately, families get pulled apart. And the local church body, though, is very much like a family in so many respects, though, isn't it? It's got the same characteristics. Both have members that need to work together towards some common goal to be effective. 
It might be a little hard to identify what the goal is for a family at times, but I'm sure if we put our minds to it, you can come up with a few things that a family should be working towards. Titus, along with the first and second letters of Timothy, are often referred to as the pastoral epistles or pastoral letters. Although they're written to specific individuals, I think the writer intended to have them shared with the broader church. So Titus was written by the Apostle Paul. As David Hook mentioned in his introduction to 1 Timothy, um, people generally accepted that until about the 19th century and started asking questions about whether or not he really was the, the author of these. And I'm not going to get into the different, some of the different arguments about that. Uh, safe to say that I tend to side with those who have looked at the arguments and concluded that no, it makes perfect sense that Paul was the author of Titus. So Titus was probably written sometime around about the same time as 1 Timothy, sometime around the mid-60s uh, AD. And the letter would have been written after Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. So it is likely that after Paul was imprisoned, uh, he went to Crete en route to Asia after that imprisonment, and he left Titus there to set things in order. In Titus first five, sorry, one five, uh, the reason Paul says the reason I left you in Crete was to appoint elders, and then he adds other instructions on how the church should function. It's not known exactly how the gospel first reached Crete, and how those churches were formed. We know that there were Jews from Crete in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and we know that from Acts 2.11 when the Holy Spirit came down on the believers so who was Titus? we get a feel for who Titus was through some of Paul's letters and also there's a a reference in the book of Acts that gives a a little clue towards who he was from Galatians 2.3 we learn that Titus was Greek and probably a Gentile but even Titus, who is with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. We know that he believed in Jesus. He was a follower. Verse 4 says to Titus, my true child in common faith. He and Paul were close friends and co-workers. We know that he was a leader. He was a man of integrity. Titus was one of those people who who was involved in the collection for the, the poor saints. And he went and did that work. Uh, he went and traveled. But he wasn't doing it for the money for himself. He was doing it for God. Titus was a fairly well-traveled man. He would travel with Paul, worked hard to build up the churches. He was commended, or sorry, he was with Paul and Timothy at Ephesus when he was commended to go to the church in Corinth. And so there's just a, a few of the places that the Bible tells us that Titus had been to. And although it doesn't tell us, uh, the, the last place the Bible says was t- Titus had gone to Dalmatia, and tradition has it that he probably went back to Crete afterwards. Where he ended his, where his life ended in Crete eventually.
The theme of the book of Titus is fairly straightforward. Paul's writing to Titus, and he's to be providing instructions to the church. Uh, The first part is about ensuring there's proper leadership in the church, ensuring that there's a focus on sound doctrine, on healthy doctrine. Part of the message for Titus is to make sure that people are doing good works. And why? It's because they're motivated by God's grace and his mercy. Some of the background to this book. So Crete is um, an island in the Mediterranean. It's off the coast of Greece. And Crete had a bad reputation. The people were rough and the island could be a dangerous place to be. The Greek gods they were familiar with, especially Zeus, were quite different from what we see in Jesus. Stories were told about how Zeus would be underhanded and he would do whatever it took to get what he wanted and he would go out and be seducing women. Um, And this was also reflecting the way the people acted. Anything was fair game to get ahead. Cretans weren't known for the op- their honesty. And one of their own, Epimenides, says, One of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And that's in Titus 1.12. There's also an issue, as some of the people were creating huge problems by teaching inappropriate things for personal gain. The false teaching was related to those who claimed to be believers, but were insisting that people be circumcised and needed to follow the Mosaic laws if they were indeed going to be following that Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And this is very similar to an issue that Paul had faced earlier on. In Titus 1.10, in Paul's reference to them, saying, they're insubordinate, they're empty talkers, they're deceivers. So the letter of Titus starts with a brief introduction, what we'll look at closer this morning, followed by instructions for appointing new leaders, expectations for Christian households, and expectations for how Christians should behave, and then followed by some closing greetings. And you'll get details, more details on all those parts in the next three weeks, Lord willing. So let's read Titus 1, 1 1-4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at this appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. So Paul had often described himself as a servant, uh, otherwise translated sometimes bondservant or even a slave. In this letter, he refers himself as a servant of God, which he doesn't do in his other letters. Uh, he does, however, refer to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ in a couple of, others, in a couple of his other letters. 
And the reference to him being a servant is worth noting because Moses, David, and others in the Old Testament were referred to as servants of God. So Paul is starting to set the stage and just link back to all of the other servants of God as he does that. It's not just him coming up with this now. It's not just him after his experience on the road to Damascus, but he's pulling everything together for them. Paul also notes that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. In other words, he's a special delegate. He's the messenger who was sent on behalf of Jesus. Paul's entire life is centered around serving the living God. He's 100% in. There's nothing else that matters to him. And he serves in order to further the faith of the elect. And who are the elect he's talking about? Well, here we have another reference that someone would have recognized from the Old Testament when the elect referred to Israel as God's servant. Paul uses the term also to refer to those God chose to be in his church. You see this in Romans, uh, we see it in Colossians, and in other versions, instead of seeing the elect, it says the chosen here. Now we don't, nor should we, follow what people say blindly. Paul notes that his calling is to share the truth of the gospel, and in doing so, people will become believers, and believers will reflect the grace of God in their lives. Paul's work is based on the hope of eternal life. Now, hope in the Christian sense isn't just wishful thinking, is it? I really hope that there's heaven at the end of this. No. Christian hope is an assurance we know it's real. It's a confident expectation of what's to come. It's that confident expectation of eternal life. And our hope is the basis for good works and behaviors that Paul writes about in this letter to Titus. We have this hope because God, who cannot lie, promised it before the beginning of time. Unlike the small g-gods that people of Crete were familiar with, our God is holy, he's faithful, he's trustworthy, and he keeps his promises. God's plan of salvation wasn't an afterthought. The entire Bible points us to Jesus. And we see similar thought in the opening to the Gospel of John. John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. Sorry, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. So this, this isn't just a plan B. This was plan A, and it was thought about right at the beginning. 
we don't, at least I don't, fully understand the idea that God would choose some and not choose others. I think that God in his wisdom knows who's going to accept and who's not going to accept. Who's going to open their hearts to Jesus and who's just going to shut them out. And as much as it would be great if everyone did, God doesn't force us to do it. He's given us choice. He's given us free will to make that decision on our own. Jesus came as the light of the world and Paul's job is to preach the good news about Jesus, which he does wholeheartedly. Paul notes that he's entrusted with preaching the good news by the command of God our Savior. Now sometimes he refers to God our Savior. Other times in letters Paul would refer to our Savior Jesus Christ. The Father and the Son are one though, just as Jesus himself said. As I noted earlier, this letter is addressed to Titus, but intended to be shared with the broader church. And we also looked at briefly who Titus was in his character. He was clearly devoted to God, and he had proved himself a man of integrity, a leader ready to do God's work. Paul and Titus shared a common faith, the same one we share today. And the concept of common faith could refer to a saving faith where we're all saved, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male, female. There's no difference in Jesus, is there? It's all about trusting in him. The concept of a common faith, though, can also refer to the, the truth that we share as believers. For example, all have sinned and fallen short. Jesus died for all of us. He rose again. He conquered death. And we need to repent of our sin and accept his gift of mercy and of grace. Jesus was an incredible man. He healed sick people. He fed multitudes. He knew the scriptures so well that he stumped the people who were trying to trick him. He even brought people back to life. And what got him in the most trouble though? Jesus put himself on par with God. He claimed to be God. And he told people that he is the only way to God. As he saw in verse 2, God doesn't lie. So was Jesus lying when he made the claims that he did? Quite a while ago, I came across a, an interesting dilemma put forward by Josh McDowell. And uh, actually, he refers to it as a, a, tri, a trilemma. Now, this man was totally opposed to anything Christian and he would go out of his way to make a big scene and shoot down anybody who supported Christianity. And one day he took up the challenge to go kind of investigate this himself. And when he did, he eventually became a believer in Christ and he actually started writing books defending Christian faith. Um, so what you're going to see here is a slight modification of what he calls a trilemma. So Jesus claimed to be God. And that's what got him in trouble. And so, the statement is going to be either true or false, right? If it's false, 
then what do we have? Well, if it was false, you have two options. Either Jesus knew it was false and he went through it anyway, or he didn't know it was false. So let's consider the implications if he knew his claims were false. Well, if he knew his claims were false, then he was deliberately misleading everybody. He was going around and telling them all kinds of things that he knew weren't true. That would make him a liar. Right? And beyond that, though, if Jesus was telling people to live a certain way and he wasn't doing the same thing, we tend to have a word for that, right? People are nodding. What word might that be? Yes, absolutely. You know, do as I say, not as I do. And what was Jesus talking to people about? Their eternal salvation. Their, not just their lives now, but also their lives later. Pretty scary stuff. Somebody's leading them away and leading them in the wrong direction for eternity. And that would probably make him something along the lines of a demon if he was doing that on purpose. And in that world, the insistence that he was God, that he was the one and only way to the Father, what got him in trouble, and where did that get him? That got him crucified for holding to that. He even told everybody that he was going to be and yet he still went that way the most painful the most humiliating the the worst way that you can probably imagine to die and he went so if he knew it was false he went to the cross knowing that and some would probably say that makes him a fool so what if Jesus didn't know that his claims were false Well, how did, how did he have the power to heal people? How did he have the knowledge he did? Like, you know, there's something there. How did he even meet the prophecies that talked about his birth? Maybe all that stuff pumped him up and he just thought, you know what? I really am that guy. He was a legend in his own mind. And I would suggest that he was uh, maybe in a state of altered reality if, he was, if his claims were false and he didn't know about it. So, but what if his claims are true? Jesus said, I am the Son of God. If it's true then, there's only one conclusion, isn't there? He's Lord. And then the question for everyone, when you realize that his claims are true, that Jesus was the Son of God, the one who said he is, you have two choices, right? You can either accept or you can reject. And God gives us that choice. So, just to pull it together by way of summary and application then, so why is this important to us? Well, we know that Jesus' nature and his character didn't line up with the culture and what people had learned about other gods and what they practiced. 
And the same is true about our society and culture, isn't it? All this time later, some things never change. The letter to Titus points us to God's grace and his offer of salvation for all. It reminds us of how we used to live and how many still live today. How we live for our, used to live for ourselves only. It also tells us that we're saved by God's grace and through his mercy. The source of life, eternal life which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. And the Bible tells us that the eternal life comes through faith in Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only, or his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We can, therefore, have hope, that confident expectation of an eternity with God through trusting in Jesus as our personal Savior and Lord. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking, what in the world is he talking about? I'd be happy to chat with you later or meet with you sometime to just further explain that. Titus provides basic instructions for how we are to live our lives corporately through churches led by qualified elders and individually as men and women before God. Paul is clear that sound doctrine is critical, that those who would seek to draw people away from the gospel are to be dealt with. And those who follow Jesus will demonstrate his lordship in their lives by the way they live through good works and through the behaviors. Realizing the incredible mercy and grace we've been shown in Jesus should motivate us towards good works and behaviors so people will see a difference in us. Our lives should be like a fragrance, like an aroma that draws people to Jesus, not like lies that push people away from him. Paul himself was absolutely and totally committed to serving God. We can't sit on the fence and have a foot in both camps. You've got to be in or you're out. If Jesus is Lord, we need to be following. Paul told the Philippians to join in imitating him and to keep your eyes on those who walk in the example that you have in Paul and in his companions. Heavenly Father, again, we're just in awe of your goodness, of your love, of your mercy and your grace. Indeed, may our reaction just to be to that be one of good works and proper behavior that people just be drawn to you. Father, help us just to commit to fully following you completely, Lord, that all we say and do would be to your honor and glory. And we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church, where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area, or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.